I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 9 as we get into God's Word together here this morning. You know, it was a number of years ago I visited the Vatican, uh, quite an interesting place to visit. Uh, in the museum there, one of the paintings is Raphael's Transfiguration. And it's really a perfect picture of what we looked at last week and what we're looking at this morning. It kind of ties it all together. You see the transfigured Jesus at the top of the painting, uh, Moses on his left and Elijah on his right. And on the next level down, you see the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and, um, and they're shielding their eyes from the brilliance of the, of the transfiguration. And then on the ground level, you see this epileptic boy, this demon-possessed boy, um, and next to him is desperate father. And surrounding them are the other disciples, and they're all pointing up to Jesus. And uh, they're, they're saying, if there's any hope for you, for your boy, it's, it's Jesus. He's the only hope. <clears throat> and then you, you've got Moses and Elijah, this conversation going on between them and Jesus. And it's just, it's just an amazing, what, what I think really gets the, difference from last week to this week is the contrast between the transfiguration on one hand and the disciples coming back down to earth with all these problems going on down below and um, the world that's waiting for them. So, you know, it's the next day now after the transfiguration and Peter, James, and John, I'm, if I were them, I would be able to scarcely keep my feet on the ground having just witnessed the transfiguration. Wow, <clears throat> they must have just been processing all they, they saw. Moses, the great lawgiver, and Elijah, the great prophet, having a conversation, who've been gone for a thousand years. They're having a conversation with Jesus. Man, it would just be overwhelming. This brilliant cloud of worship, the Shekinah glory surrounding them, and, and being able to experience that and not die like they would have done in Old Testament times. And they didn't understand it all, but they must have just been full to the brim with absolute joy. And so at the top of your outline, it says this, after the wonder of the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples come down to face reality. This is the fourth and final exorcism in Mark. The disciples are unable to perform it, and so Jesus does, emphasizing the necessity of faith and prayer. So let's read our passage together. Mark 9, starting at verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as, as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you, what are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him 
And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This is God's word. Well, this passage begins with the disciples' failure to be able to help this boy and heal him. So why the failure? Because they were relying on themselves. They were trying to do it without the power of Jesus. Man, that <clears throat> right away when I, when I read that, I thought of John 15, 5, uh, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And what can we do apart from Jesus? Nothing. We can do nothing apart from Jesus. And because I can do nothing that really matters for eternity without Jesus' help, then I should, that should continually drive me back to him. His unlimited resources Uh, they trump my limited resources every time. And so you've got this on your outline. I need to let my weakness and my brokenness drive me to his sufficiency. Do you believe that Jesus is all sufficient for you? In one of his books, A.W. Tozer writes something that uh, still challenges me today. He says this, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes to your mind when you think about God? What do you think of when you think of who God is for you? The disciples have a ways to go before they learn this lesson, but there's a man with a son who's about to learn it right here. And so the first thing that got my attention in this passage is, number one on the outline, we never advance beyond our need for Jesus. It's great when we can recharge our spiritual batteries and go to a retreat, you know, sign up today for the men's retreat. We've invited you guys to do that. Uh, to have that mountaintop experience. But we were never meant to stay there. 
We weren't meant to stay on the mountaintop. We were meant to come down and and be a witness to the people around us. You will be my witnesses, Jesus said. And we're to minister to the people who are hurting around us. We go into this world as God's agents. And if we forget this, we open ourselves up to the same thing that the disciples experienced, which is pain and humiliation. Jesus comes down from the mountain and he's, essentially he walks into an argument. And it's an argument between the teachers of the law, the scribes, and Jesus' disciples. So look at verse 14. When they came, that describes the encounter. They came to the other disciples. They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. So these disciples had failed to cast out the demon. The scribes were giving them a hard time for not being able to do what their teacher Jesus had supposedly taught them to do. Uh, it's never enjoyable to go through a failure. I know we've all experienced failure because we're all human. Um, But how we respond to failure, that can make all the difference. And so this is, again, on your outline, we should be able to take a failure and ask God to use it and help us learn from it, and especially to learn how we can rely more on Jesus, how our faith can grow. The, The teachers of the law in verse 14 were using the disciples' lack of success, I think, to question Jesus' authority. That's what they were doing anyway. We have to point people to Jesus because Jesus will never fail us. Other people might fail us. Other people will let us down. But Jesus will never fail us. Our response should be to follow the example of the people in verse 15. Look at verse 15. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with with wonder and ran to greet him. That should be our response. You know, when I used to discipline our kids, I, I would make them hug me before they left me. I wanted them, and you know, I'd I'd punish them, they'd be in tears, but they'd turn around with open arms and give me a hug, and they'd say, I know you're making me do this. They'd give me a hug. But I wanted them to know that when God disciplines them, I want their first response to be to turn to the Father, not away from the Father. Because like I love them in a very imperfect way, God loves them perfectly. And that needs to always be our response, to turn back to the Father, to turn back to Jesus. In verse uh, verse 16, what are you arguing about? And the father is the one that answers in verse 17. A man in the crowd answered, uh, I brought you my son. And this boy uh, seemed to suffer from epilepsy. I don't know if you've ever seen an epileptic uh, attack or seizure. Uh, I was in Jerusalem. The first time I visited Israel, I was with uh, a group of folks from, uh, from Wheaton College and one of the guys had epilepsy was by himself at the Jaffa Gate, the main entrance gate to Jerusalem, and had an epileptic seizure. And it's, it's just like it's described here. It throws him, threw him to the ground, foaming at the, at the mouth. He was gnashing his teeth. They say the first thing you do is you put a piece of wood, anything to block their mouth so they don't bite their tongue. And uh, he had something on him that identified that he was studying at the American Institute of Holy Land Studies where we were, and he got sent back in a taxi. Uh, but it was a miracle that, that he made it back. But this sounds very much, much like an epileptic attack. 
But what we need to see, and this is throughout scripture, is that when Satan possesses someone, when, when a demon comes in and possesses someone, he uses whatever weakness is already there and he leverages it for his power over that person. And I believe that's what happened here. And the same thing will happen to us if we try anything when Christ is absent from our lives or if we're not including him and seeking his direction in our lives. And this is one of the reasons why the day of Pentecost is so important. And why, why did the disciples fail? Well, Jesus said, I'm going to my Father's house. I'm preparing a place for you, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending you my Holy Spirit so that you can experience the power of the Holy Spirit living in your life. So there are a couple of realities here that we just can't miss. They're on the outline. Jesus clearly believes uh, in the demonic. And we see that demons are real. They're not mythological. Satan is real. And his demons, and he and his demons cannot touch God, but they can touch us, God's children. And they will. They're out to inflict pain and death and to separate us from God. That's what they're out to do. So that's why we are in a battle every single day. We're in a spiritual battle. We need to be aware of that. We need to put on the armor of God. The one offensive weapon we have is the sword of the spirit. We have to be armed with the word of God. We never battle in our own strength. In our own strength, we are helpless. And again, on your outline, we have to always be prepared because we're fighting a spiritual battle. And at the same time, there's a confidence that we can have because we don't need to fear Satan. 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Man, if you've never memorized that verse, you should hide that one in your hearts. Because if you're ever confronted with Satan tempting you, if you're ever confronted <clears throat> with anything demonic, that should be your response. You don't have to fear that. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And Satan is called the God of this world. <clears throat> and then look at verse 19. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Jesus gives them this strong rebuke. Man, that's a strong rebuke. You unbelieving generation. And then he expresses his exasperation and his weariness. I think we see a little bit of his humanity coming through here. One commentator said this, Mark vividly captures the pressures and the frustrations of Christ's life in these verses. On the mountaintop, he had faced the spiritual short-sightedness of his disciples, and here in the valley, he was confronted with their unbelief. <clears throat> Have you ever said to someone, how long can I put up with you? And maybe you've said that a few times with people. I, that's, I think, the frustration Jesus was feeling here. Whenever the disciples are separated from Jesus, they get into trouble. And you know what? The same is true for us. If we exclude Jesus out of our lives, we're going to get into trouble. We never advance beyond our need for Jesus. The second thing that we see here in these verses, uh, number two, is that we never advance beyond our need for faith. Never. The author of Hebrews says, you've got it on your outline. In fact, let's read it out loud together. <clears throat> Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. So the question is, how much belief? How much faith do we need? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives us an answer in Matthew 17. He He says, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Ah, did you hear that? We don't need to have big faith. Just small faith will do. And we're gonna see here what, that a little faith in a great savior gets amazing results. So look at verse 19. Bring the boy to me. <clears throat> so he brings the boy and, uh, <clears throat> And and the demon knew exactly, they knew that Jesus wasn't messing around because as soon as he sees Jesus, the the demon throws the boy into a convulsion. And in verse 22, the father said, the demon has often tried to destroy him. Think about that. Wow, that's what evil does. That's what sin does in our lives. It's always destructive. It never produces good. It it never will give you life. It never produces good fruit. It never leads to peace and reconciliation and truth. It never takes us in a good direction. Sin is evil, period. It's never good. Rebellion is never good. Disobedience is never good. Lust is never good. Gossip is never good. Stealing is never good. Maybe underneath all of them is pride. Pride is never good. It's always evil. This is sin. So let me ask you a question. Where in your life are you tempted to look at what God says is evil and for you to see it as less than evil? Where is sin deceptive, maybe deceptively attractive for you? Where, because of its attraction, because of its pleasure, because of its supposed beauty, are you letting your guard down? Man, it can happen to all of us. Are you toying with things that will lead to your destruction with your eyes, with your mind, with your heart, with your desires, even with your physical body? You know, I pray that all of us today will receive this warning. There's another thing, and again, it's on your outline. We have to embrace, as pictured in the disciples, our utter powerlessness to defeat evil in ourselves. You and I have no independent, no self-sufficient ability to be able to defeat evil. None whatsoever. None. Maybe we have the ability to expose it. Maybe we have the ability to restrain it, but we cannot kill it on our own. And when the, when the disciples 
obviously in unbelief, obviously in self-reliance, try to deliver this boy, they have no power. And in a, in a physical picture, you can see what happens when evil has its way in this boy. This little boy is robbed of his humanity. That's what evil wants to do to us. And the spirit inside of him is actually intent on bringing him to death. That's what it says. That's what evil does. And even though this man's faith is weak and small, he's at least looking in the right direction for help. Right? He's asking the right person to help him. And what we see in these next verses, and again on your outline, is that the key to great faith is dependency on God. That's the key to great faith. The father begs Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Verse 23, Jesus says, if you can, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. So let me just say here too, this text is not a blanket universal promise that says that anything you believe will happen, will happen. That's not what it's saying. Jesus is essentially saying right here, sir, your problem is not my ability. Your problem is not my willingness. Your issue is your faith. That's the issue. If you come to me in faith, things are possible beyond what you could ever even imagine. And listen, the same is true for us. When we face a battle with sin, and again, on your outline, our problem is not that God lacks power or willingness. The problem is our own unbelief. And so verse 24, I was talking to someone this last week, and, and uh, we were talking about the key verse in Mark, and, and uh, I said, I think the key verse is Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he said, boy, for me, the key verse is right here. Verse, 25, verse 24. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. What this father is saying, I, I believe, but I'm, I'm struggling to hang on to that belief. What a humble confession. What, what a great confession for all of us to make. You know, we believe, we, we live by faith, but not always. And this is exactly when God steps into that space and he uses the mustard seed of faith that we have to put the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And this is biblical Christianity that we need to understand, that we need to embrace. On your outline, don't believe that you need to be free of all doubt for God to work and answer prayer and intervene on your behalf. Don't buy into any other version of Christianity. And those versions exist out there. I was in a Billy Graham crusade in Dallas, Texas. One time I'd taken a friend there from Wichita who was deaf. We were sitting in the deaf section. They were having a uh, sign language so that they could hear it and they could understand what was being said, even though they couldn't hear it. And some guy walks up to the deaf section and he yells, you all can't hear because you lack faith. 
And my friend turned to me and he said, what did he say? He didn't realize he couldn't hear this guy. This guy didn't realize that no one could hear him. And I said, don't even bother with it. It's ridiculous. That's biblical Christianity. Don't buy into any other version of it. You know, this life has a way of just pounding on us because we live in a world that is fallen. We live in a world that is so broken. And as long as we live in this broken world, we are going to wrestle with our flesh. And and, and we need to make this our prayer. Lord, I believe, will you help me with my doubts? We don't need to feel guilt about wrestling with doubt. Even with all his doubts, Jesus heals this man's son. He does a miracle, even with all the doubts. And the father says, if you can. And Jesus is like, if I can, I can do anything for someone who believes, even if they have unbelief. Even if it just just takes a little belief. And I'll do something, I'll do a miracle. I believe, but I don't believe. Help my unbelief. And this father's saying, I I know my faith is weak. I know my faith is partial. I know it's incomplete, but still, I trust you, Jesus, and only you. You're the only one that can heal my son. And so help me in spite of me. That needs to be our prayer for all of us. Help me in spite of me, Lord. And boom, just like that, Jesus heals the boy. Wow. Wow. Man, that should encourage us. And if you're saying, well, I'm I'm moping around because I struggle. Well, who told you you wouldn't struggle? Where did you get that from? You didn't get it from what the Bible says. You didn't get it from this man. Of course we struggle. This is on your outline. Of course we struggle against doubts, but God honors the fight. And so we keep struggling, we keep fighting. We keep seeking after God. We keep, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We keep gathering together to listen to the word of God because our faith grows. What God doesn't want is someone who says, well, I'm giving up the fight because God isn't gonna help me anyway. No, we don't give up the fight. You're not even crying out to God for help because you believe he won't help you. That's not even faith as a mustard seed there. Maybe you give lip service to God. Maybe you're pretending that everything is okay and and everything is all put together, but you're not. So you'd be honest with God, like this man was honest with God. That's a real faith. We're honest with each other. We need to stop pretending. This man's faith was imperfect, but it was real. That's what we want is real faith. So he makes this public declaration of faith, I believe, and at the same time, he knows he's weak and he pleads for help. And I don't care how strong your faith is, there are moments in this world where your faith and my faith is under attack from the evil one. We need to remember that. We need to understand this is the world we live in. We'll be under assault from the enemy. 
He wants to destroy us like he wanted to destroy this boy. And sometimes your faith is like hanging on by your fingernails. And you pray and you say with this man, I believe, I believe. But mixed in with that belief is unbelief. And so no one's belief is perfect. Don't let anyone tell you that they never doubt. If they do, I know that they're, maybe they do, maybe they never doubt. My guess is they're doubting somewhere on some level in their heart of hearts. But no one's belief is pure. No one's belief, sometimes our belief may be weak. It happens. We need help. We need to be honest with God. Help me with my unbelief. And then the crowd begins to build and there's all this commotion. Look at verse 25. When Jesus saw the crowd running to the scene, he rebukes the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. And Jesus casts out this disgusting demon and and it, it, it puts a no trespassing sign on this boy's life. Look at the next verse. Verse 25 continues. I command you come out of him. Never enter him again. Man, the demon had no choice but to obey. Remember 1 John 4, 4. But as he leaves, he convulses the boy one last time and violently, it seems like the boy's dead. In verse 26, the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus, those have to be the best two words in all of scripture. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Literally, the text reads, Jesus raised him and he was resurrected, which I think is pretty cool because it's like a a little bit of a preview of what's gonna happen to Jesus. Evil will defeat him, it looks like. He's on the cross, looks like he's defeated, but God resurrects him. The power of God, by the power of God, he's resurrected. What encouragement to all of us. We don't don't need to think we're hypocrites because our faith isn't perfect. There's a question that we all need to answer here, and that is this. Do you believe that God can do anything? Or put another way, maybe, do you believe that God can do what the scriptures describe? That he's faithful to his word. And then finally, number three, we never advance beyond our need of prayer beyond our need for prayer. I think in these next couple verses, they're really important to the passage. Look at verse 28. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus responds, I think with this really powerful insight, verse 29, this kind can come out only by prayer. So the phrase, this kind, is is referring to casting out demons and all other spiritual conflict like this. What he is not saying is he's not saying that some demon exorcisms require prayer and others don't. He's not saying that. He is saying that as we are daily on a battlefield, if we go out in our own strength, if we go out in our own pride and our own self-reliance, We've lost the battle before it's begun. That's what he's saying. Faith bridges the gap between divine power and our weakness. And that faith is experienced, this is on your outline, 
is experienced and exercised, Jesus says, through prayer. Maybe this could be why, why prayer is one of the most challenging of all the disciplines to practice. Because it's the easiest to talk about, it's the one we talk about the most, but I think it might be the one we practice the least. We talk about it, we talk about prayer a lot, but do we do it? Maybe that's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Uh, Throughout the day, every day, all day, we take our thoughts and we turn them into prayers. We watch the news and as we're watching the news, we're praying to God. We're asking him for his intervention. But we take every thought captive to Christ and we, we pray about everything. The power of prayer will not be lived out if we don't pray. And the character traits of believing prayer, I think, could be summed up in in the, the, the Father's heart, and that's humility. He comes with humbleness before the Lord. It all depends on Jesus, because if he acts, I'm delivered, and if he doesn't act, I'm lost. I won't be delivered. So faith expressed in prayer says, I would, wouldn't have it any other way than to have Jesus deliver me. And again, on your outline, the essence of prayer is abandoning my reliance on my own strength and wisdom and resting myself on God's power. If I'm sufficient in myself, I don't need to pray. Why pray? But prayer isn't a religious game of saying some of the correct words to please God. He sees our hearts, so pour out your heart to God. It doesn't have to be perfect. There's a danger for all of us here because and I, I, I think this is a struggle because as we begin to understand forgiving grace, as we begin to get, get a certain knowledge of the Bible, then I, I think it's easy for us to rely on that knowledge and not pray. And, and we rely on ourselves and we begin to think that we're more able than we really are. So here's the reality, that that we desperately need the grace of God. We desperately need to connect with that through prayer. And we need it as much right now than the day we became a Christian. I'm sure you've been watching the news on Afghanistan. And as you watch, it seems so hopeless, but are you praying for Afghanistan every day right now? Lord, help my unbelief. And maybe you've been praying for a a health issue that you have. Maybe it's a serious one like cancer or whatever it is. If it's serious to you, it's serious. Are you praying about it every day? Are you committing it to God? At the same time, we say, Lord, help my unbelief. Maybe you've been praying for a loved one who doesn't know Jesus and a a prayer for them every day. You keep praying for them. You don't give up praying for them. Kathy and I were talking about this. There's people that I've prayed for for 27 years. Don't know the Lord. Keep praying. Lord, help my unbelief. Maybe you're praying to be a light in your neighborhood. 
a light at work, a light at school for the Lord? Are you praying for your neighbors, for your friends, for your coworkers by name every day? Keep praying, don't give up praying. At the same time, you can say, Lord, help my unbelief. It's been a long time. Keep working, Lord. Please work. God, I'm not able to live this way apart from you, apart from your transforming grace. I need Jesus. And so prayer, this is on your outline, is both a confession of our own neediness and a celebration of God's grace. And maybe there's someone here this morning who has never prayed. Maybe you've never confessed your need. Maybe your deepest problem you've, you've, it, it, is realizing that the deepest need, my, my, the evil, is not the problem around me, not the evil around me, it's the evil within me. It's the sin I have in my own heart that I need to confess before God to experience the forgiveness of the Savior and, and, and be forgiven from sin and, and have a life that's transformed by Jesus. And your invitation is to pray and to seek the forgiveness of God. You know, Raphael's painting of the transfiguration um, gives us this beautiful picture of this text. And the disciples are standing below with their hands raised in worship. And, and they just towards the transfigured Christ and they're just expressing that if Christ doesn't help me, I will never be helped. This poor father will never be helped. His, his demon-possessed son will never be free. And that says it all. The power here comes through a praying faith in a great Jesus, a great Christ. So God continually asks us, do you believe I can do anything when you need healing, do you believe God can do it? If you need reconciliation with someone, do you believe God can do it? If you need a miracle in an impossible situation, do you believe God can do it? The challenge as we pray is to realize that God's agenda is often different than our agenda. And this is where prayer helps. And there's some questions I want to end with. You've got them on your outline. Number one, and be as honest as you can as you answer these in your heart. Do you believe that God can do anything? So don't be so quick to answer this one because do your actions, think about it this way, do your actions jive with your prayers? We contradict ourselves when we stress out and worry about something we say we've committed to God. So if you've committed something to him, if you've given it to him and you're still stressed out and you're still worried and you're still anxious, have you really given it to God? Do you believe God can do anything? Question number two, are you willing to leave the anything up to him? You may desire one thing and you may be confident that God has one thing in mind for you, but this is not God's will for you. I got a text from a, a gal this week and she said, please pray for me because the guy that I was sure that I was gonna marry broke up with me. I knew God had told me that I was gonna marry this guy. And I, I responded and I said, you know, I think there's a place where if it's just a feeling that we have where, where we should be skeptical. There's a healthy skepticism about the will of God unless it's written in scripture. Well, his name wasn't in scripture, so maybe this is, a, you know, 
maybe this is not God's will for you. But I'm guessing that sometimes uh, we just need to understand that from God's perspective, something that we are sure is God's will is maybe harmful for us. Maybe it will lead to our destruction. Maybe it's not best for everyone involved. We have a myopic way of looking at things sometimes. Question number three, will you stop worrying and quit interrupting and cease striving and simply pray? You know, sometimes like me, you know, I am fully convinced that I know exactly what God should do and exactly the way he should act. And when he doesn't do it, I I can get a little upset. Why aren't you doing this for me, God? And uh, when we get frustrated with the will of God, I think that's our sign that we need to pray again. And we need to keep praying. That's a good indication that we're not done praying about it. When you trust him completely and you can't find peace, there's a problem. You keep praying because he will give you a peace that you don't even understand in the most difficult of situations. And then question four, will you accept the answer that he chooses to give you? Are you willing to set aside your disappointments and to receive from God what God wants to give you instead of what you want? And that's really submission. That's what we're talking about, submitting ourselves to to God and his authority and his lordship in our lives. Are you willing to set that aside and respond in obedience to God's authority? If you can respond positively to all those questions, in your heart of hearts, I would say you are a mature Christian. Even if you can say, you know what, I can respond positively to most of them, you're on your way to being a mature Christian. Think about it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray by your grace that none of us would be guilty of living prayerless lives. Father, like the disciples, failure, failure can sting, it can hurt us, but please let it hurt us in a good way that drives us to you with open arms. Increase our faith, humble us in prayer. Father, help us to take the shield of faith, which is uh, able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And if there's anyone here this morning who's never prayed and confessed their sin to you, will you draw them to yourself because that's what you do. And I pray that you would do that for them now, that they would respond in faith. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Go in God's blessing. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy, make you whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen. Have a great day.